Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and we're on New Books in Eastern European Studies today and New Books Art and New Books History with our guest, Dr. Katarzyna Morowska-Muthesius. Welcome, Kasia, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Stephen. So uh, we're going to talk today about Kasia's new book, It's called Imaging and Mapping Eastern Europe, Sarmatia Europea to Post-Communist Bloc. This is published by Routledge in the series called Routledge Advances in Art and Visual Studies and published this year in 2021. So a little bit about our author. Dr. Katarzyna Morawska-Muthesius teaches art history at Birkbeck College, University of London. She was curator and deputy director of the National Museum in Warsaw, as well as guest professor at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Her publications include Borders in Art, Revisiting Kunstgeographie, published by the Polish Academy 2000, the National Museum in Warsaw Guide, Galleries and Study Collections, published by Museum Narodowe, National Museum, Warsaw 21, Kantor was here, Tadeusz Kantor in Great Britain, published by Black Dog in 2011 with Natalia Zajetska. From Museum Critique to the Critical Museum, Ashgate 2015 with Piotr Piotrowski, and the book today. So um, I want to start with a question uh, for you, Kasia, as an, as an art historian and as someone who's followed your work in the history of, of cartography and, and the visual artifact. What was it that motivated you to write your book? All right. So, yes, I have to start from saying that the book has been brewing for a very, very long time. And um, the decisive factor definitely was my move to Britain exactly at the time when Eastern Europe has emerged from behind the Berlin Wall and became a hot topic. It was difficult not to notice that it was ever present in the media, in, in TV documentary, but also increasingly in academe. It, it started to be widely researched. It was widely researched by historians, geographers, you know, political scientists, but also by anthropologists, by sociologists, cultural historians, literature scholars. And there were three books which appeared um, at the time when I arrived in England, um, by Larry Wolf, Inventing Eastern Europe, Maria Todorova, Inventing the Balkans, and Vestna Goldsworthy, um, that was actually, no, that was Inventing inventing Ruritania. Maria Todorova was imagining the Balkans. The Balkans. So um, inventing was obviously the key term. And all those books um, focus on historiography, on travel diaries, uh, studied literature. And 
for a person you know who was and by training an art historian it was not difficult to notice that the, that the topic of the visual production of eastern europe eastern europe as an entity um by means of maps there were many maps which would appear everywhere in atlases in in, in newspapers um, by means of cartoons there were a number of cartoons um, of Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe as such, Eastern Europe as a as a region, magazine photographs, TV documentaries, etc., etc. Et it was a virtually untrodden territory, so I felt invited very much to dive mm-hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. And there is another factor because not only that it was a um, you know decisive change with the with the visibility of Eastern Europe. But I also arrived in Britain at the time of the of profound changes in the, my discipline, discipline of art history, which forced me to reinvent, reinvent myself completely. In Poland, I used to be curator of old masters' um, paintings, of Italian paintings. And mm-hmm. in England... I had to, you know, I had to find my find a role in England, find a job also. Yeah, of course. So um, that was a long process, actually. But in order to do that, in order to become anybody, anybody in the field of art history, I had to learn new methods, you know, adopt critical approach, learn about the post-colonial theory, learn, you know, be aware that now we are going to focus not on celebration, the great masters, but looking for the traces of discrimination of the disempowered, of mm. representing the other. Well, I'm kind of sound a bit cynical, but um, and it is easy to be cynical from the you know hindsight. But I took it very seriously um, at the time, as of course many, <laughs> I mean, as of course almost all of us. So, and that was also the time when um, the new discipline, in a way, within the remits of art history was being coined, um, visual culture, which uh, um, differed from art history in that sense that instead of focusing just on old masters or just on those masterpieces, um, on mainstream art, um, it was open to um, all kinds of images um, popular culture, science, media, of course, on the gaze and visuality, social con- constructs, um, ways of seeing as the ways of knowing. And that was incredibly, that appeared, that was very interesting for me. And yeah. uh, in order to, um, and I did an MA, although I already had a PhD from Poland, but I thought that I had to learn something completely new. And I was very happy, actually. I did an MA in Middlesex University in the topic of visual culture. And um, visual construction of Eastern Europe um, was my simply MA um, dissertation. It was, it was an obvious topic for, for my new research. Mm-hmm. So that was, in a way, the beginning of the book. But I want to say something else, because um, there was one more stimulus. Um, um, there was a comment made on my about my handwriting by my colleague an art historian a feminist and who was very you know author of very important publication and very well versed in the issues of art and exclusion and 
um, she said that my handwriting is um, Eastern European. Oh, so, <laughs> so <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> my handwriting served as the marker of difference. So interesting. Yes, on the one hand, this confirmed the classification of Eastern Europe as an entity. So that was quite important for me already. <laughs> as the unrecognized other at the time when it would be inappropriate to talk, for instance, about African handwriting as being recognizably different from British handwriting. So there is this kind of problematic issues which arise from that. But on the other hand, it provided me with this a very stimulating idea how to assess how to assess where is the difference what is the eastern european difference does my polish handwriting stand for eastern european handwriting as a whole if so what are the, its defining features can i apply visual analysis to find out to to assess you know to to somehow to grasp the eastern europeanness and of course, this this brought this question. Um, eventually, is Eastern Europe an image? So this is how how it all came about. And I started from looking at cartoons. Cartoons is my is my topic in a way. Is my when I say I specialize in cartoons, but very soon I move also onto maps, and. I soon discovered the affinity between maps and cartoons, maps and caricature. And I wrote several articles, uh, which now, of course, form the core of the book. But that was not the end. The book was brewing, as I said, for a terribly long time, because I started teaching um, art history at Bergberg. So I had to, again, reinvent myself, kind of going back to the old, not, the, I mean, to the new art history and teaching, of course, the new methods of art history, teaching various topics. Um, that took took my mind away from the book. Of course, I didn't have time for that, simply. Mm. Then came the period when I was deputy director in the National Museum in Warsaw, which also <laughs> took my time, time definitely away from the book. Ka- Kasha, and- Kasha, I think you've been everywhere. And, and I, I want to, you know, give our readers an impression of, of your versatility. Um, I, I wonder if we could do this by, by talking a little bit about the chapters that you have and the content of the book. So, you know, I, I one thing that really struck me, um, and, and, you know, sorry, but I, it, it really strikes me is the image that you have for your, your cover. And I hope, you know, our listeners will, will take a very close look and inspection at, at the work by the artist Katarzyna Perlach. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how was it that you decided to choose cartoons, maps, um, some photographs, you know, what, what was it that, that led you to kind of curate the content of your book into into the five chapters including the you know sort of fantasy countries like slaka out of malcolm bradbury um how how did you go about choosing the, those sources yes no it's a very good question um, it was a very long process you know i had to select certain groups certain types of representation or visual representation which would which would feature in my book um and uh, at the beginning, I, I, you know, I was simply um, uh, trying to find as much as I could. And um, 
perhaps I should say, because you mentioned Slaka, so I was also inspired by um, Malcolm Bradbury and his novels, Rates of Exchange and Why Come to Slaka, which I, I, I talk about them in the introduction. And then, um, and but obviously they, I mean, no, I cannot say that they have nothing to do with, with images because um, um, both of those books had very interesting covers Right. Um, so that was my beginning of my interest in book covers. But um, you asked me about my chapter. So I devote yes. my interest to, first of all, to, um, I mean, I started from cartoons, but this is the chapter um, kind of three or it's chapter four, I think. Um, but um I mean, yes, cartoons was, car studying cartoons um, in Punch, uh, was the beginning. I spent a long, long okay. time uh, first looking at those bound volumes of Punch in various libraries, going through them and photocopying <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. images of um, cartoons of Eastern Europe. And I, it was a fascinating and it was a happy time of my life um, doing this research. But um, how did I come to maps? Now, I... I must say, <laughs> I cannot, I can't remember the exact moment, but I think, um, well, um, well, there are quite a lot of maps in cartoons already. Mm, um, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, and um, I studied, I, I think, my interest, I, my interest in cartography and the image of Eastern Europe. Um, began from looking at those political diagrams, those um, geopolitical diagrams produced by half of Mackinder, mm. or those kind of sympathetic diagrams produced by um, Robert Seaton uh, Watson. I always looked for images, for maps of the whole region. I would not add up um, maps of Poland or Bohemia, um, right. Hungary or the Balkans. That I, you know, I definitely wanted. I want. I was interested in the representation of of the region, how this image of Eastern Europe, of this Eastern Europeanness, um, came about. So, um, I did my initial. Initially, I wanted to focus just on the 20th century um, and on England, starting from Punch and from those geopolitical um, diagrams. But um, I could not stop there. Um, um, I could not possibly um, begin the book from just from marking their diagrams without contextualizing them. This is my training in iconology in Poland. You know, when I was a curator of, of old masters, um, I, you know, I um, actually I learned art history in Poland. Um, uh, I was a student of um, Professor Jan Białostocki, who was who promoted iconology um, as a method. So um, you cannot just leave an image alone. You know, you always have to trace. Um, the iconographical code to which that image belongs. So this is how I began going into other maps, um, which mm -hmm. preceded um, Mackinder and Seton Watson's diagrams. 
I also had to explain, I also was uh, fascinated by the map on the cover of, um, which was chosen by Larry Wolf for the cover of his book, Inventing Eastern Europe. This is a very interesting maps, map. Uh, um, not a, it's not a typical map because it presents the itinerary of Shabdotrosh, the astronomer, who, um, um, who began uh, his travel from Tours in France and finished in um, Tobolsk in um, Siberia. Um, but there is also a, um, there are also cartographic bodies. It is not just the itinerary as such, but this itinerary was um, juxtaposed to a personification of uh, France, personification mm. of Holy Roman Empire, and both of them, of those ladies, were you know were obviously noble persons in um, magnificent clothes and um, headgears and sitting on the throne and beautifully lit. And they were juxtaposed to two personification um, of Poland because the, the obviously the astronomer had to cross Poland going to Russia and Russia. And in spite of the fact that Russia was also an empire um, at that time already, um, and Poland uh, was a kingdom, was still a kingdom, um, um, those personification were incredibly humble. You know, they were folk, they were peasants, they were yeah. warriors, but a kind of low type of low type of warriors. Mm -hmm. So um so this cover was I mean cover of Larry Wolf's book, but of course I have to find out about um, about Shabdotrosh and his and his travel diary. And mm. this brought me onto um, onto travel images. Um yeah, I have a lot of questions for you about that. Um, yes, be, and because I I, just just to finish go, finish this. Go ahead. They were so so. Eventually, my book contains of in a way four major chapters: one about maps, one about travel images, one about cartoons, and the final one on book covers. Yeah, I I want to come back to the the last chapter because it, I. I was so fascinated by the battle of the dust jackets, as you call it. You're ac you're actually doing something that you know that very few people do: historicizing and contextualizing the the choice of art or the choice of photographs on on some of the canonical works in in the field of Russian East European Eurasian studies. Um, I, I want to come back to that because you know you, you have I think a really interesting take on exhibition catalogs and art publications as, as well as photography. But I, I did want to ask you if you could talk a little bit about travel writing and the traveler's gaze. I know you mentioned Larry Wolf and, and Todorova and Goldsworthy and, and probably Mary Louise Pratt belongs in this category as well. I mean, the, the work of, Randy, of Wendy Bracewell and, and uh, Alex Trace Francis and others. Um, so how how do you put a post-colonial critique or a post-colonial approach into your understanding of the visual as well as the textual in, in the travel writing on Eastern Europe? Okay, that was quite a <laughs> quite a dense question. Um so um, um well um the travel images um, just as um uh, just by <laughs> are already the other um 
in um, I mean, this is one question. This is one issue that images are very rarely studied uh, in by um, travel um, um, genre in travel genre studies. So this is one other. Um, and um, and I wanted to focus. I wanted so I, I looked at those travel books and I started looking at them, looking at books which you know which were published in the 17th century. I didn't find any any other um, travel books which are, with images which I could take into account. Um, and um, yes, I lost my my plot actually. I'm interested in the travel gaze and how you incorporate post-colonial criticism. You mentioned new art history, but I suspect that you had a pretty deep encounter with post-colonial theory and the visual turn. So how, how do you then begin to explore that in your analysis in the book? Well, yes. Um, well, the, there is this, I mean, you've already mentioned um, my, Mary Louise Pratt and the contrast between the traveler and the travelee. So the travelee is the other. Um, and in a way you can, and obviously you can apply post-colonial theory to study the way in which the travelee is being described. But you can also use the post-colonial theory to study the way in which the travelee is being uh, visualized, is being okay. represented. So I think this is a, for me, this is a kind of pretty straightforward <laughs> application of um, of post-colonial um, tenets. You know, the, the concept of the um, um, epist- epistemological violence, the way in which you represent the travelee um, uh, and are misrepresented, um, but. I, I struggle with the answer here. Yeah. And perhaps the reason is that because I've been writing about that for such a long time, and when I started writing about uh, about the representation of Eastern Europe as the other, I was very much um, into post-colonial theory, and I would constantly talk about the other misrepresentation, the epistemic violence, the mm, the disempowerment, etc., etc. And I, I'm not saying that I don't. I want to abandon such an approach, but for me, there there are things that have already been said. Mm. So, post-colonial uh, sensitivity activities um, accompany my um, thinking and writing about the representation of um, of Eastern Europe but this is not the um, uh, it's not the topic in itself it's not the end it's not the mm-hmm. end of my research but obviously it was difficult not to find out and um, that the that Eastern Europe, that the signifier of Eastern Europe since the 17th century, since the earliest um, earliest travel um, books, which um, uh, which account um, travels to those territories, including Edward Brown, um, brief account of his travels to these remote parts of Europe, um, that they include invariably image of the ethnic body of the mm-hmm. peasant woman in her ethnic dress. This is really um, 
when I have realized that um, after going through several, several books, um, uh, um, uh, it it appeared in Edward Brown. The same image appeared as the first image in Alberto Forti's Viaggio in Dalmatia. Um, and in 19th century travel books, and then in National, Geogra- National Geographic. I used National Geographic yeah, quite a you, lot. You do have a uh, lot of photos from Nat, from Nat Geo. I wanted to ask you about some of those. Can you, can you give some examples of, of how you see the ethnic body portrayed? Are there, are there stages? Is it evolving over time? Is it gendered in a particular way? I mean, I, I do think Edward Brown is a really important you know, sort of 17th century scientist and travel writer. But I guess I'm wondering if, if in the sort of Western traveler's gaze from National Geographic, you, you see some key changes, whether, you know, in, in photography or drawing. Um, there are many changes, but at the same time, there is still the same body, the same body. It could be a peasant, but uh, later on, it is not necessarily a peasant woman. It could be a kind of middle class woman. It could be an artist who put on the uh, could put on an ethnic dress. She's performing in a way Eastern Europeanness, um, right. um, or Polishness, or um, Slovakness, Bulgar- <laughs> Bulgarianness, Bulgarianness, etc., etc. So. Um, um so but it is still this timeless the it is the this is the most stable signifier of eastern europe this the most recognizable image this is what i have um, arrived at this that was my conclusion go, going through um travel books but also cartoons that the image of the ethnic body it is most often than not it's a woman, but not necessarily, uh, not necessarily in cartoons. In in travel images, it is mostly a woman, um, and she's obviously gendered. She's she's she must be beautiful. There are very few images of women who um, who are old, um, but of course she changes. Um, so she's both timeless. She is Eastern Europe as such. You know, when we see an um, a, a woman in ethnic dress which includes those um certain uh, which includes those um typical features of eastern europeanness such as linen shirt um embroidered linen mm. linen shirt and uh sumptuous right. skirt she must be eastern european um i uh, she's an unmistakably um she, she's she's a signifier of eastern europe but yes um, at the beginning, she's, um, as I have um, written in my book, she's an enigma for Edward Brown. Uh, he cannot uh, really um, make her out. Um, he, he drew her because um, he was a draftsman at the same time. And this is actually ah, fascinating. That's right. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so he drew her in a very interesting way, but you can, but um, um, when he was describing a Hungarian nobleman, he described it in, with such an ease. Everything was easy. You know, that was, I mean, he was able to name all the parts of the dress and um, mm. um, it was um, a kind of discourse, already, already an established discourse. He knew how to describe him. But uh, 
he didn't really know how to describe the Bulgarian woman. Um, there was a problem with, with her headgear because uh, he knew that it is of Turkish or Greek origin, actually. Um, but so that was already somehow it didn't fit. Um, no. So this her ethnicity was already complex. Um, and but the major thing is um, that he decided to include the image of this of the Bulgarian woman um, who is represented in a sympathetic way. Um, I cannot see any attempt on his part to, in a way, misrepresent her. He actually mm-hmm. presents her as a, you know, as a very skillful person. She is, um, um, she's very neatly dressed, and um, uh, she holds a, a big fruit, probably a pumpkin or a melon. Um, she has got uh, keys um, um, hanging from her belt, so she's obviously a person with some authority. Um, uh, but um, yes, uh, well, she's a peasant woman who is an. Uh, it's obviously what I have um, noticed with Edward Brown, who was a scientist, that um, he often represented, uh, he often drew things which have not been drawn before him. You know, he didn't have a model. Right. Which Right. Um, there was not a visual code that he could that he could um, he could answer. Or maybe I'm complete. Maybe I'm not totally right because there are of course costume books. Costume, say costume or costume. Cost, costume, yeah, costume, costume books. Costume books um, which, but I did actually study the books um, which were produced at the time and which might be might have been available to um, to Edward uh, Brown, and um, none of them would include a woman like that you know they will they yeah. mostly represented noble nobility and there was no bulgarian nobility I, at the time I, so I, yeah yes. i mean i think i think I'm, sorry i mean i think of all the tr- sort of writing on transylvania as well in in this context and you know you mentioned um the veil i, I the shalvari is is such an interesting you know sort of representation of bulgarianness versus ottoman europe i mean if you have the veil sort of around your neck, you look more like a Bulgarian peasant woman. But if you have it around your head or maybe around your face, obviously this is coding it in a very different way, mm-hmm. um, right? So, I mean, I'm wondering how it how that changes over time, both as a sort of signifier of, of the hegemonic and the counter hegemonic, for lack of a better word, because th- this is also a big theme in your book when... The signifier uh, yes. is, is resistance. Uh, yes, I mentioned this um, veil in, only in the context of 20th century photography. So the Bulgarian woman at um, at Brown's um, drawing, she doesn't have a veil. She, she, uh, interestingly, she, she doesn't have a um, headkerchief, um, which would be a, which which is which would evolve. Uh, later on into another signifier of of an Eastern European woman. Um, So, uh, but you are talking about uh, signs of resistance. So, well, we can... uh, Yeah, let's talk about that in in the context of your cartoons as well. Yes, from Bulgarian women represented by Brown um, to uh, those two um, uh, women um, uh, from Katarzyna Perlak's um, film. Um, and uh, this is, they, in a way, um, they belong to the same iconographic code. Um, um, 
this would be now called folk culture, you know, um, from and they they look like a standard image, like a standard image which could be uh, used by tourism industry or even politicians um, who wanted to gain um, support from um, the various um, large audiences, the largest audiences as possible, largest audiences as possible. Um, however, they ch- they differ from this um, this kind of serene, unproblematic image um, yeah. by the fact that, and it is instantly recognizable. The, ba- uh, the, bala- the balaclavas. Have, <laughs> exactly. But they have those balaclava masks. So something is wrong here. Obviously, they hide something, uh, or the, the image points to um, to something hidden, which is not which is not visible. So those masks on their on the girls' faces, those they destabilize the image, um, and um, they explode. <laughs> and the notion mm. of folk as the guardian of um, public um, decency, as the guardian of traditional values. And um, re um, and um, remap, as it were. Yeah, um, that's it's a great point. It's exactly right. Go go ahead. Sorry, I got enthusiastic the, about this. Folk <laughs> culture as the potential and, in fact, the real medium of dissent. And mm-hmm. this is absolutely fantastic. And therefore, I put this image on the cover because it both stands for Eastern Europe, and at the same time. It queers it. It queers right. it in a literal sense of the way, um, sense of the term, um, because um, those girls actually they sing a song which is, um, which, uh, um, which is, which sounds the same like the traditional Polish songs about two lovers, but the change in the ending, um, you know, those gender ending. Um, makes it absolutely clear that those two lovers are women. That mm-hmm. this is a, this is a lesbian song. So, right. the, so um, obviously you cannot hear it um, in the image, but you can see uh, the subversion. You can see this resistance, the folk as the um, medium, as the site of resistance uh, through balaclava masks. I mean, mm-hmm. you can guess. Yeah, that I mean, there I, is my. my... My my first thought, Kasha, when I saw the image, and, and I saw it actually before your book by, by Perlock, was to think of Pussy Riot and, you know, a sort of non, non-space that's actually a space that's a sort of queer-topia. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think that that's really, I mean, how you trace this backwards um, through, you know, both photography and, and visual artifacts like cartoons is is really interesting. I mean, people have to read read your chapters on mm-hmm. on Mr. Punch and, and, and on other sort of satirical representations to, to tease out the counter-hegemonic element of this as a form of resistance. Um, I wonder if you could yeah. say a word about these um, satirical magazines that, that existed during the communist period and that also, you know, sort of went out of business. Um, mm-hmm. Crocodile is probably the most famous example mm-hmm. of this in 2008 or so, but there were, you know, satirical cartoons and, and examples out of out of the Eastern Bloc or at least out of Warsaw Pact countries. So how do you conceptualize that visual archive into the iconosphere? 
Well, this is a fa fascinating topic. And in fact, I told you that I started from cartoons and I actually, uh, in order to make it short, I said that I started from studying cartoons in Punch. But this is not. <laughs> this. The, the truth is that my research on cartoons start, began from looking at... Um, Eastern European, but mostly Polish cartoons. Mm. Mleczko? Was it Mleczko or somebody else? Uh, Mleczko, Mleczko came, came slightly later. And that was, of course, Mleczko was very important, Andrzej Mleczko's cartoons. And Andrzej Krause, who is, um, who is actually living in London. Uh, but... Um, I, I, was, I was absolutely fascinated by the 1950s. Um, late 1940s and the early 1950s, you know, the, the the heat of the Cold War and cartoons had nothing to do with socialist realism. Cartoons were incredibly, you know, experimental, innovative, very strong, very in, individual. You know, you can recognize the cartoonist um, um, style, uh, hand. Um, so that was, that was, this is how, um, this is in a way how my fascination with cartoons began and I of course I discovered that you can learn quite a lot about history about what was happening there obviously this is a very you know opinionated version of history nonetheless both going through those Polish satirical journals and I did a huge huge study then I went through <laughs> or perhaps not all of them, but many, many journals I, I looked at. Um, those both um, everyday newspapers and journals such as Szpilki. I also Szpilki that is um, pins. Um, I spent quite a long time, um, even in the, in, in the archives. Um, that's a very nice place actually to to learn about about Spielkin. I mean, it still it's it still exists and it's very well. Um, my one of the one of my uh, um, as far as cartoons are concerned, one of my um, research topic was the representation of the West. And um, I wrote um, some time ago this an article, um, which then I published in various languages, uh, the, the imperialist warmonger. Um, and um, so this is how I included parts of this text in uh, in this book. So I wanted to um, to juxtapose um, the image of Eastern Europe as produced by Punch. This the Eastern European group person formula, which was invented by Punch, and which consisted of you know of a group of um, children in folk costumes, um, running around either either um, quarrelling amongst themselves, sometimes beating, sometimes uh, but or also bullied by um, uh, by um, Dame Europa or um, some or dictators, um, so. And image of the Eastern European, and this image of the Eastern European group person as a, you know, as a this, um, as a bunch, as a bunch of people uh, who are who um, who are difficult to manage. Uh, you cannot really uh, trust them. Um, you can bully them. Who are prone to be subjugated. Um, uh, this was um, um, 
in a way, um, this lasted very for a very long time until the end of the Cold War. Um, I have found many cartoons, um, not only in British uh, newspapers, but even in German newspapers such as FAZ, uh, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which included the same formula, which must have been borrowed from Punch. Um, uh, and um, so this formula, it was in a way, I mean, the answer from, from, from the East, um, uh, in this case, I'm talking about the Polish cartoons, but not only Polish cartoons used the same thing, uh, was to represent the West as the other. Uh, however, the West, um, uh, it, never, it would never include the people. Mm-hmm. Abstracted. Um, who are yes abstracted running around and so on it would be always associated would be always embodied by the politicians by by the people in the government who will be accused for um, of warmongering such as Winston Churchill of course um, who was not actually mm. accused firstly by eastern european i mean made into warmonger by eastern europeans but still um, it is I mean, this cartoon by Boris Yefimov which i'm which i'm including in my book that was one of the most um, one of the strongest representation of um, of um, of churchill as a warmonger Mm. Mm-hmm. Represented as a kind of bear in the circus, as, as um, obese, um, as branding those um, hand grenades and um, establishing yeah. Iron Curtain over Europe right. because it was right. in the context of the Iron Curtain speech. I, I mean, you you have so many interesting images. I mean, the the one of the Truman line was also very striking to me because obviously there's a Cold War context, as as you know, Larry Wolf and others have argued back not just to the 1940s, but to the 18th century, where you have this trope of, of domination and, and power. Um, I mean, I think of the, the Sakura Mazak part of his book and, you know, I mean, these group identities that, that are established, but often of fictitious people like Morlocks, for, for instance, um, you know, that, that was really an inspiration for me in getting started um, dealing with maps and the, the so-called tipi and vidi, um, like what Rogers Brubaker has argued on, on how to establish groupism and group belonging, and then, of course, how to sort of signify resistance to it. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, Kasha, because I, I'm fascinated by the last chapter, five, after after you talk about uh, Punch magazine and, and mapping and so on. Um, what what brought you to write about dust jackets? This is this is just an absolutely wonderful chapter, um, because you've, you've got you know like the iconic photo of Michnik and Havel and Kuran. You have um, you know how Paul Magochi's historical atlas changed from Eastern Europe to East Central Europe to Central Europe. Um, I mean, you have you know even like books up to the present, John Connolly or sort of Liberation Brigade books, Kristen Godsey's book. What what brought you to sort of, you know, use all of your talents as a, as a historian of the visual turn in, in art history to, to sort of contextualize this? How, how do you how do you do that? What do you what are you saying? Well, it was actually a very a fascinating adventure for me. Well, I have to stay if I have time. I have to start from the very from the very beginning when I started my research on Eastern Europe, and I I remember my wandering um, 
in library among the, you know dusted shelves and um, trying to find and finding those books, those shelves which were devoted to Eastern Europe. And all those books were incredibly uninteresting in, in, in visual terms. Um, they were, they didn't have dust jackets because uh, they might have been produced with dust jackets, but you know dust jackets were seen as something inappropriate, so they had been mm, torn away and 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 probably thrown out, thrown away. Uh, so it was completely. Mm, it was, you know, it forced me to read always the table of contents whenever I wanted to assess what the book is about. And um, it forced me to read the book. I didn't have this kind of visual signifier, which appear, which started appearing. There were some some books which were which were published in, in the 1990s already with with an image on the cover. And they were my saviors, as it were. You know, that was e- easier for me. Um, I mean, perhaps erroneously to think that I... I know what the book is going to be about, um, uh, judging judging the book from its cover. Um, that's another topic, of course, that you cannot really do it, but I claim in my book that you can do it because the, the cover is um, this space where, uh, where the idea of the author, uh, the ideas of the publisher and ideas of the designer collide. Yeah. Packaging, right? The, the package, I guess, or the, or the, for the brand with the signature of the author. Would you say that? Um, it is. It might be, but not necessarily so. I, I suppose, for instance, your books, they always have very interesting cover, and I'm pretty sure that you are involved in actually thinking about it. But many books have cover designed by um, designers. Uh, and as it happens, sometimes those cover have nothing to do with the real contents of the book. This is a kind of general statement uh, about the features of Eastern Europe of Eastern Europeanness. Nonetheless, I consider them very important, even if um, I consider the choice of image as the kind of the act of first reading of the book, of this of this collision between between the text and the ideas of what what is Eastern Europe, which uh, which have formed or are being formed in the mind of the designer. So, um, so, so yes. So, uh, the period when, um, in the new millennium, when there were this this almost overproduction of books on Eastern Europe, and they, many of them coming with fascinating covers, um, was was a godsend for me. A godsend in that sense um, that um, cartoonists and cartographers um, have somehow abandoned the topic of Eastern Europe. Not completely, but um, there aren't that many maps of Eastern Europe which are being produced today. And there are very few cartoons of Eastern Europe as an entity which is produced today. But this is, um, you know, um, completely... reversed um, this process of the... um, vanishing of the image of Eastern Europe is reversed on um, book covers, which compensate (laughs) uh, disappearance by um, and producing a, I mean, using the old imagery, um, but also producing new ones, hence the battle of dust jackets, of the dust jackets, 
this is of course um, the you know I referred to Swift and the Battle of the Books. <laughs> I refer um, to Swift too. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, well, because it, I, I really wonder why this is the case. It, it is a vanishing. I mean, I think about obviously you know lines or annexations or incorporations, and and here Crimea or North Macedonia or something like that, right? But I think you're right. I mean, there ha- there has been at least maybe since 2014, much less of a, a production of visual knowledge with actual maps. And I, I wonder why that is. I mean, in your book, you have so many interesting abstract designs, and, and I would say, I would call them counter-hegemonic maps. Um, but I, I really, until I had read your book, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I was still thinking, you know, in the Wolf Todorova Goldsworthy 1990s um, tradition, so I, I wanted, since we're kind of running out of time, if, if I could ask you about some um, books that you might recommend to our audience here at, at New Books Network, and it could be um, in art history or, or anything else that you're interested in. <laughs> well, I was thinking about books uh, which, which are related actually to my topic. So I would definitely, as far as maps are concerned, I, would, I have two candidates. <laughs> One is Katerina Piechotsky. Uh, her book, Cartographic Humanism, The Making of Early Modern Europe, published by Chicago in 2019. A beautifully written um, um, book, uh, a kind of reflection, but very deep reflection on on the relationship between map and literature and culture, um, which was inspirational for me. Um, Then, of course, this is, and uh, I actually have to say your book, uh, Mapman, as far as the later periods are concerned, um, uh, was also a very important reading and um, increasingly so, I must say. I would prefer more images, though, Stephen. Me too. It makes it it makes it so expensive. I, I'm constantly I like putting up that fight. You know how it is because it makes the book so is. expensive, right? Yes, I also had Thank to spend you. loads of money on my on my images, and I had to resign from some because they were simply too expensive, and they would not come out very nice anyway. So um, now you've already mentioned Wendy Braswell and Alex Drake Francis under Eastern Eyes and, and other books that they have produced together on um, East European travel writing. It is actually they did not write about travels to Eastern Europe, but there are some chapters in the books they produced which include traveling to Eastern Europe. Then um, it is Eva Manikowska, a book which I have uh, discovered quite recently, and I'm very angry that I had not known about it uh, when I was writing the book. Um, Eva Manikowska, my former colleague from the National Museum in Warsaw, who doesn't work in the museum anymore, and she published a book on photography and cultural heritage in the age of nationalisms, Eastern Europe, Europe's Eastern Borderlands published first by um, Bloomsbury and then republished or reissued by Routledge. It is full of very interesting uh, images of <laughs> also of ethnic bodies. So, But I think this is the mm, text-wise, the books is also mm, in very interesting and mm, worth reading. 
Uh, as far as cartoons are concerned, this is the most difficult topic. I haven't got such a book that I want to, I would like to recommend. Of course, there are many books that I have read, um, but um, Martha Banta on Barbaric Intercourse, Car- Caricature and the Culture of Conduct, published a long time ago in 2003, would be still perhaps the number one, apart from those class- classical authors on caricature, such as Gombrich. And uh, um, the book, which I definitely, as far as dust jackets are concerned, I would definitely recommend the, the collection of texts edited by Dennis Duncan and Adam Smith. Oh, I don't uh, know that. Yes, it was published by Oxford University Press. It is called Book Parts. And it is a wonderful collection right. of very short texts, which include from <laughs> dust jacket, but book covers and, and title pages and table of contents, um, footnotes. And there are many, many chapters in this book, short with very good literature. It's a fantastic, a fantastic reading. Um, so this is, there are, Thank this you. is my selection. Fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think of all the books about China and Russia and the Soviet Union that have read book covers, someone has to write about that some someday. Yes. Oh, um, definitely. definitely. Right. And, and so, Kasha, what are you working on now? This is the last kind of um, two minute question. What are, what are your projects and research Yes. Now, obviously, there will be some, uh, I will have to do some more things on imaging Eastern Europe. But a research project that I look forward to um, after that, uh, it is, I'm returning to caricature. And I'm preparing, um, I will be preparing a book under the title that I have now um, established, but of course, that will change. Insult and Inquiry, Cultures of Caricature. And I want to write about caricature as a critical art form and I include not include a lot of Eastern Europe, but also will be also traditional caricature. Remember, I was in Italian, uh, Italian painting, um, especially. So I also know about Italian caricature um, in early modern period. Uh, but I also want to look at um, cultures of caricature in um, non-Western countries. And I think about India and Argentina. And the final, um, and this is related to that, I uh, want to do it and rather in collaboration with other authors, the caricature reader. I think this is something that oh, is really wow. missing. Um, would, would that be Routledge or something like that? Or... I'm not sure yet, um, yeah. because this is really, I have not, um, this is, this is I, I don't have a, you know, I started thinking about it, but it's definitely must be included and starting from early modern That's... writers. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a brilliant idea. I mean, Duke University Press has those sort of country reader series, but I would love to see something like that for for visual um, for visual studies. Fabulous. Um, look, I, I wanted to say thank you um, to Katarzyna Morawska Muthesius for for joining us here on the podcast here at New Books Network. We've been talking with her about her new book, which is published by Routledge in 2021 and the Routledge Advances in Art and Visual Studies series. The book is called Im- Imaging and Mapping Eastern Europe, Sarmatia Europea to Post-Communist Bloc. Congratulations to you, Gratulatia Kasha. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here on New Books Eastern European Studies and the New Books Network. Until next time. <laughs>